Hello, everyone. It's uh, great to be back uh, with you again. Uh, surprising circumstances. I didn't expect to to be uh, speaking tonight, but with Grant uh, having to, to isolate, he asked me if I've got something, and uh, hopefully something that will will help us. Um, but um, I. I was involved in the Eat This Book series and uh, towards, I think I only ended up speaking one of the, the ones in person. And I talked a little bit about you know, the Bible and spiritual formation and we looked at uh, the Ezra and Elijah paradox and we looked a little bit at, at that idea of Ezra and Nehemiah and that story. And tonight I want to look a little bit again back at this kind of Part in the biblical narrative of of Ezra, Zerubbabel, Elijah, it's called the what what many people call the return and rebuild narrative because I think it has something to help us as a people and as a church as we think about renewal in what has possibly been for for myself probably one of the most difficult Julys of my life. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but uh, my whole family got COVID in July. Um, then uh, we, we've also gone through a pretty difficult moment as a, as a country. Um, so a lot to process. I, I think we've had 18 months almost now of being locked down uh, in some form or another as a country. Um, and so there is, I think, probably for most of us a lot that we've had to process not just in the last month or so but a lot that we've had to process in the last year year and a half um, and I think something of this story what I call the the Ezra Nehemiah narrative or or the return and rebuild narrative uh, can help us as we process that so I want to read a passage of scripture uh, and then look at uh, my sermon's titled The Hundred Year Vision, but uh, then look at a little bit at Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, that kind of story. Is that okay? Can I pray, read a passage of scripture, and then we'll get into my sermon, which is called The Hundred Year Vision. So Lord, thank you for, for this evening. Thank you for Harbor City. Um, just pray for Grant and Michelle, uh, even as they're isolating. We pray, Lord, that you would protect them from this disease. Um, and pray for the whole of Harbor City, just your hand upon this church, uh, upon all of us as we hear your word preached. And I pray, Lord, as your word is preached, that you would stir our hearts, you would stir our hearts with vision and with faith, um, um, and help us even as we process this interesting season that we're in. Um, may you be glorified, Jesus, as we talk about your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to start in 2 Chronicles, uh, chapter 36. I'm going to read. It's, it's the last kind of passage of 2 Chronicles, and it then leads into Ezra chapter 1. Uh, but I'm going to start in 2 Chronicles because it gives us a little bit of context. And it says this, 2 Chronicles 36 verse 17 says, He brought up, talking about God, uh, against them the king of the Babylonians who killed the young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women uh, the elderly or the infirm God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar he carried them to Babylon 
all the articles from the temple of God, both small, large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the kings and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors. Uh, and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. And then Ezra 1, as I turn over the page, says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord and the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any lo locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Um, I don't know if you, anyone's heard of a guy called Yvonne Schoenard. He wrote a book uh, called Let My People Go Surfing, which is an interesting title for, for a book. And uh, basically... He would uh, shut the office when the waves were big, and they would all go surfing. But no, that's not the whole point of the story. He founded a company called Patagonia, which is quite a contr contrarian outdoor company that uh, uh, gives uh, a portion of their profit to the rebuilding the environment. But he says this. He says, if you are trying to build a 100-year company, if you're trying to build a company that will last 100 years, you think really differently than if you are trying to sell your company after five. He says you think differently about what your aims are. You think differently about how you treat people. You think differently about consumerism and the footprint that you are going to end up leaving on the planet. And. Uh, Patagonia is famous for on Black Friday in America, they took a full page uh, New York Times uh, advert, which is really, really expensive, put their flagship jacket on that page and in big letters told New York, do not buy this jacket on Black Friday. In fact, they went around New York on Black Friday repairing people's old jackets to try and stop them just getting into the consumerism. And I think what Yvonne Schoenart is saying is true, that when you think long-term about something, when you think about something uh, in a 100 years, you think very differently about it than if you are only thinking about a one year's time. Someone once said this. He said, you know, we overestimate uh, what we can do in a year, but underestimate what we can do in 10. And I think that's true if you expand that over 100 years. I mean, just for, for, for argument's sake, think back, if we have to go back in history and, and think about what 1921 
would have looked like just pure technology wise we could not be imagining a world where the internet and everything else that we have exists um, in a hundred years a lot happens and uh, so I, I you know thinking about Durban now thinking about Etiquini thinking about South Africa this uh, amazing country that we live in uh, what would what could South Africa what could Durban look like in a hundred years time and I'm not just talking about technology you know we're not just trying to imagine a kind of uh, uh, city where there are flying cars and you know we tap into the internet with our mind or whatever a hundred years is going to look like uh, I'm talking about what could a city look like in a hundred years time when we talk about the big issues of justice and family and race and inequality when we talk about our, our schools and our university system would those be places we want our kids to go to when we talk about the difficulties of South African apartheid spatial planning and trying to deal with those issues what is our vision of Durban looking like in a hundred years time and uh, um, I don't know about you, but I know for, for a number of people that I've spoken to, probably the month of July has knocked our vision of the city, has knocked our vision of the nation. Some people are packing bags and wanting to, to immigrate. Some people are encouraged uh, and, and thinking, no, there's still so much here that this country has to offer. But... Um, what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time to look at the Ezra and Nehemiah story because I think it helps give us a little bit of perspective if we think about a hundred years time and if we think about renewal because what is happening in the Ezra Nehemiah narrative is you have a people that have been absolutely decimated by the Babylonians. Uh, the Babylonians in, in 587 B.C., uh, ride into the city because of the city's obstinance against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar rides in and he literally destroys the city. He destroys the walls. He destroys the temple. He takes all the, the best people in, in the area. He takes them off to Babylon. The only people he leaves behind are some agrarian kind of farming kind of people that can continue to work the land so that they can pay tribute to Babylon. But basically, he has destroyed Jerusalem, absolutely destroyed it. So by the time we get to Ezra 1, where the, the Persian king, uh, Cyrus, is issuing this decree, you have to imagine a remnant of people that are in Babylon now being told that they can go back. But they're not going back to glamour. They're going back to a destroyed city. They're going back to walls that have been torn down, a temple that has been smashed, housing that has not been lived in, uh, a city that is absolutely decimated. And this is the Ezra-Nehemiah narrative that we that we. Um, that we engage with when we read Ezra and Nehemiah, when we read uh, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi, the kind of prophets that were prophesying uh, at that time, when we read those stories, we're reading about a people that are coming back to see renewal of Jerusalem. They're coming back to rebuild it. They're coming back to a place that has been destroyed. Um, and uh, 
uh, I think this narrative is its story, the prophecies, the events that unfold throughout this narrative is, I think, encouraging for us in this time because it is a story about the reculturation and the restoration of a people, not just of a city, but of a people that have been hit hard. Um, and uh, um, so can I just give us a little bit of context, and then I've got three main points, and I'll conclude with uh, a, a story. But uh, a little bit of context is 586, as I mentioned, the city gets completely destroyed. 536 is Ezra chapter 1, so this is 536 B.C., you know, so, yeah, we know timelines, it's going back, back, but 536 uh, uh, B.C. is when Cyrus comes into power, and, he, and the people come back, and they start, they rebuild the altar. Uh, it then takes them another 20 years to complete rebuilding the temples, uh, temple, and then if we jump a whole bunch of decades forward, we get to 444 uh, B BC, which is when the walls are completed by Nehemiah. We get to 433 BC, um, which is a time when Nehemiah comes back. He's rebuilt the walls, goes back to Persia, comes back again to be the governor of the city and by the time we get to the end of Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 13 so you 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 know you re we really should read Ezra and Nehemiah together uh, in in Jewish uh, tradition uh, the Ezra and Nehemiah were on the same scroll they were always read together and most theologians believe it's got the same author and probably is one book that was split into two at, at some point in history. But uh, we should read it together. And what you see is, is if you look at Ezra 1 and you go to Nehemiah 13, that kind of passage, you've got what is probably around about 120 years from start to finish. Uh, it's about 92 years from the building of the altar to the building of the walls in Nehemiah. Sorry, a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, I hope that's okay. And it leads to a point. It just gives us a little bit of context for understanding. But I've got three points, and, uh, and they're three points about renewal that hopefully will help us as we think about this moment in, in our own history. And the first point is, is this. What we see in the Ezra and Nehemiah narrative is we see the multi-generational nature of renewal. What happens is there is over a hundred years from Ezra 1 to Nehemiah 13. Over a hundred years. That's a long period of time. Um, and we have the tendency when we get to this kind of moment in, in the biblical narrative, we have the tendency to think that the same people that were building the temple were the same people that were building the walls. But this is not the case. It would have been the great-grandparents who built the temple of the people that were building the walls. There was a multi-generational um, gap between when the temples was first built and when the walls were completed. It's a multi-generational project. 
Um, so what we see is that the story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the story of the rebuilding <coughs> of the people of God, the story of renewal is a multi-generational story. It doesn't take just one lifetime. It doesn't just take one group of people applying themselves to finish the work of renewal. It's a multi-generational work. And I think like, to get an idea of the importance of the multi-generational uh, nature of renewal, we see this, I think, most clearly in families, that good families are not just built in one lifetime. Um, you know, Nicholas Wolfinger, he's a sociologist, and he says this uh, in hi all his research that he does on, on families. He says what, what they have found is that people with divorced parents are disproportionately likely to marry other people who come from divorced parents and are disproportionately likely to get divorced themselves. What they see is that there's a multi-generational aspect to family, that good families are built over generations, that uh, we learn from our parents, we build on the foundations of our parents, of our grandparents, etc., etc. And the same they found comes when it comes to abuse. Hurts people hurt people, as we often hear. And we could go on and look at things like wealth and success and, uh, as I mentioned, family and, and so many different things that you can look at. And what you see is that good families, people, lives are built over generations. We like to think of it as a one-lifetime project that uh, if, if, you know, that I am going to be able to rebuild a city in my lifetime or that I am going to have the perfect family uh, in, a, in my lifetime. But I think what we see more clearly is that good families, good cities, cultures, nations are built over multiple generations. Um, and, and that certainly is what we see in this story, that the renewal work is not a work of one lifetime. If our vision for our city just involves our lifetime, then our vision of Durban is too small. In fact, sometimes it's not just too small, it becomes too self-centered, too self orientated that our vision of building a good city sometimes can just be about us about how we live or about our involvement in it but what we see in this story is that this rebuilding of the people of God the rebuilding of the culture of God the rebuilding of the city of, of God in one sense of Jerusalem is a multi-generational project we have three leaders. We have Zerubbabel who comes to build the temple. We have Ezra who comes to restore the culture and bring the word of God in central to the people. And we have Nehemiah who comes to rebuild the civic structures of society. Uh, we have these three generations of leaders over three different periods in, in the narrative each coming to play their part in the rebuilding of the city, in the rebuilding of the people of God. 
Zerubbabel has to build a temple. Ezra comes back to rebuild a broken culture by bringing the word of God into the center of its people. And Nehemiah comes back to essentially build a wall, but he comes back to do more than that. He comes to rebuild the civic structures of society. Each generation playing their part. Each generation building on the work of the previous generation. Each generation having a vision of a city that has to go beyond their own lifetime and their own work. Um, I, I think if you think about Yvonne Schoenard saying that uh, you're talking about when you think about 100 years, your perspective changes. I think that is the same for us. If we think about 100 years, we think about marriage. If we're thinking about 100 years and the legacy of our marriages um, and our family to our kids and our grandkids, some things become more important than just having exhilarating romance. Things like learning how to fight well, stay together, last, become valuable when you put long-term vision in perspective. Um, and when, if we think about Durban uh, or think about South Africa in 100 years, I think things like competing to be paid more than your work colleague, driving a, driving a nicer car than your neighbor, having a better garden than the person next door to you, uh, those things become less significant than probably some of the bigger issues that are facing us in our economy, like the growing inequality, which if you span over a hundred years, you realize puts us in a catastrophic position. It's like the nobles of the dark ages lording over the peasants. We have to think differently. And the span of multi-generational vision helps us to do that. The work of renewal in our city, in Durban, uh, is a work, is a multi-generational work. We have a part to play here in the infancy of our democracy. We have a part to play. And our kids will have a part to play. And our grandkids will have a part to play. And if we play our part well, they will build on the building blocks that we put in place now. That the city, that the nation we hope for, maybe in 100 years will be realized. Maybe in 200, maybe in 300 years. But we have a job to play now. Because the work is multi-generational. Zerubbabel built a temple. Ezra reestablished the word of God in the center of society. Nehemiah built a wall and and the civic structures. Together, over three generations, they built a city. A city that uh, built the culture of the people of God. The second point is this, is the catalytic nature of church. Um, uh, a catalyst, I, I did a little bit of chemistry when I was in varsity, and a catalyst is something that you add to a reaction uh, to speed up the reaction or to cause the reaction to happen that wouldn't normally happen under those circumstances. So you add a catalyst to something uh, to get it moving or to, to speed it up. And what I, I mean here in the second point, the catalytic nature of church, is I mean this that 
when we talk about the catalytic nature of church renewal, what we mean is that the church is integral in the renewal process. Um, I don't know about you, but when I read the Ezra Nehemiah narrative, one of the things that stands out to me is that a broken, scared, fragmented people would come back and the fir their first priority would be to build the civic structures of society. Get that wall up. Make this place secure. You know, let's get the economy going. But what is the first thing that they do? They build an altar and they build a temple. In fact, the wall only comes 92 years after that process. Um, the first thing that they do is they establish worship. They establish God at the center of their renewal work, at the center of their society. It's almost like they understand this, that identity has to come before institution. Uh, and so they, I, what do they do? They, their primary job, the first thing that they focus on is establishing their identity as the people of God before they rebuild the civic uh, parts of society and this identity comes through the dual practice of worship and the word Zerubbabel comes and establishes a people in worship and Ezra establishes the people of in the word uh, one of the interesting things that you find in this kind of moment in history is is I, I find this really fascinating is the invention of the synagogue up until that point, up until the rebuilding, uh, the synagogue was not in place. And what was the purpose uh, at that time of the synagogue? Is it became places of reculturation, the places of rebuilding the the people of God, and they rebuilt the people of God through the practice of worship and the word. And these places became catalytic in the rebuilding of society. Um, and then we span three centuries later, 300 and something years later, and we get to Jesus, and we get to the establishment of the church where the people of God come to the word and come to worship. And this becomes integral in cultural and societal change. There's a, a, a guy called uh, Robert Woodbury. He's a... Uh, from Singapore, but he, he writes a paper for the Amer American Political Science Review, and it's a real eye-opener. And in this paper, he goes, he researches the role of conversionary Protestants uh, in, in bringing about healthy democratic societies. And uh, what he finds in, in his research, and uh, W when you read some of the background of his paper and you see how much uh, scrutiny his paper uh, went under for, for them to publish it. But what they find is that conversionary Protestant missionaries were more effective in, in building healthy societies than non-profit uh, organizations that focused on social justice issues. Um, and so what he does, spanning through multiple countries across different uh, uh, parts of, of the globe, uh, what he finds is that 
essentially, it would be more effective in changing a society for people to go and plant churches in order to convert people to Jesus than to go and start non-profit organizations that would aim at bringing about social justice issues. Um, and what uh, a guy called Doug Ponder says is, he says, what, what the research finds is that making disciples is still the most effective way to improve the world. Why is that the case? I think it's the case because the church is catalytic in bringing about social renewal. The church is catalytic in changing the world. Why is that? Because churches, I think, are better at, we may not be perfect, and I know in South Africa there's a lot of, of, of tension around some of these things, but in general, over 2,000 years of history, what you realize is the church is better at racial reform, compassionate ministries, redistribution of wealth, recognition of the insignificance of society than anyone else has been in 2,000 years. The church does more than people give it credit for. The data over 2,000 years just tells that story. A guy called Bob Wellinger says the spiritual renewal precedes social reconstruction. What you see in the Ezra and Nehemiah story is you see the rebuilding of a temple that becomes catalytic for the rebuilding of society. That spiritual renewal become is essential for social reconstruction. What you see in, in 2,000 years of church history is you see the church becomes catalytic in the changing of the world. Um, a guy called Chad Spillman says this. Uh, he quotes Tolkien at the end of his commentary on Nehemiah, and he says, A man may have a garden with strong walls and yet find no peace or content there. And he says this because there are some enemies that such wars will not keep out. What, what is Tolkien saying in his book at that point, and what is, is Spillman trying to tell us, uh, is that sometimes the greatest threats to our success, to our rebuilding projects, are not external, they're internal. They're the issues are inside our own heart. And that's where spiritual renewal becomes so essential to social reconstruction. Um, one of the things that disturbs me about South Africa is that we claim to be 80% Christian. Um, that, and I don't know about you, but if you just look over the last few months, if you look in July in particular, there, there seems to be a problem if we really are a nation of 80% churchgoers. Um, and, and I think the, the problem there is, a, it, it could be a number of reasons, but the problem is essentially have churches just become places of social gathering? Have they become places of opulence and serving our own desires for wealth and prosperity and some of the preaching that happens? Or are they places where we put God first? Are they places where spiritual renewal happens before social reconstructions. Um, and, and churches are, I, th 
I think churches are catalytic in our social reconstruction project. That in South Africa, churches are catalytic in the next hundred year vision of Durban. And if Woodbury is, is correct, and I think he is, if we look at the history, if Woodbury is correct that conversionary Protestants uh, are, are more effective at changing the world than, than socially orientated institutions, uh, if churches are, then what that means is that us coming to church can't just be about coming to church. It has to also be about seeing other people hearing the message of Jesus. It has to be about seeing people come to know him. It has, in one sense, the mission of the church, which I know is part of the mission of this church, has to be to plant churches. Because planting churches become catalysts to the renewal of the places in which those churches are planted. Social, rec uh, spiritual renewal precedes social reconstruction. That the building of the temple leads to the rebuilding of the culture. That the building of the temple re leads to the rebuilding of the city. That the planting of churches and the healthy nature of worship and the word in the people of God rebuilds to uh, results in the changing of the world. Uh, and then my final point is this, is that one of the things that we see in the Ezra-Nehemiah thing, and it's one of the hardest things to grapple with as you read this story, is the anticlimactic nature of renewal. The anticlimactic nature of renewal. What some theologians say is that anticlimax is probably the biggest issue in the Ezra-Nehemiah story. The big theme is anticlimax. What we see in Ezra 3, they've just laid the foundations for the temple. And it says that from the neighboring city, so this would have been far. It's like, imagine us here. We just laid the, the foundations for this building. Uh, it says that the neighboring city, so imagine people in Glenwood. That's, I, I know it's not a neighboring city, but just imagine that kind of distance. Would have heard screams of shouting for joy and weeping with sadness. Uh, there was this mingling when the foundations were built of, of shouts of joy and weeping with sadness. It's anticlimactic. Some people are really excited that the temple is rebuilt and some people are sad because they've seen that what has been rebuilt cannot compare to the glory of Solomon's temple. It's like there is this anticlimactic nature. We've done this work. We've accomplished something, but it's just not as great as we thought it would be. The same happens with uh, Ezra. You get to the end of Ezra, and you realize Ezra has taught the word. He's tried to rebuild the culture. He has worked really hard at this. And what does he find? That people just aren't living it out as much as he had hoped. In fact, the whole of the Ezra-Nehemiah narrative ends with Nehemiah in resignation saying to God, God, please remember the good that I've tried to do. It's not this moment of victory. It's this moment of resignation, of of Nehemiah saying, I've built the wall, I've tried to rebuild the civic structures, but people still aren't living as great as I hope. The city doesn't look as glorious as we had envisioned. It's anticlimactic. Um, and I think that is 
the, the tension that we face in all renewal work is that all renewal work is, in some sense, anticlimactic. We tr I don't know about you, but you know, I've tried in my years to be involved in different projects of, of renewal, and, and sometimes what you find is that despite your greatest efforts, things just don't work out as great as you had hoped. You go out to change the world, and maybe you've made a little bit of a difference, but certainly not as big a difference as you had hoped you would have made. Now, why do I tell this? Not to discourage us. This last point is, is not here for us to be discouraged and go, Omar, why would we embark on a 100-year project when it's going to be anticlimactic? Why would we work towards the rebuilding of a city when by the time we get there, we're going to be in resignation? I, I say that because I think this is the big idea of the story. And I think the big idea of the story, as most theologians say, is very strategic. And it's very strategic because the anticlimactic nature of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the anticlimactic nature of the rebuilding of the temple, the anticlimactic nature of all of that is to remind them of what the prophets were prophesying. What the prophets were prophesying at that time, if you look at Zechariah, Zechariah prophesied that Jerusalem would be a city without walls, but Nehemiah is gone and built a wall. Uh, Ezekiel had prophesied that the temple would be within, and yet they've gone and rebuilt the temple. What is happening here? The prophets are not prophesying about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and they're not prophesying about a rebuilding of the city. They're prophesying about Christ and Zion. They're talking about Jesus and the city of God. They, and the anticlimactic nature of the book is the constant reminder that all that they're working to is good, but it is not the final fulfillment of what they hope. In our efforts to rebuild Durban, in our efforts to build great churches, in our efforts to see the city rebuild, there's something anticlimactic about it. Because as great as we hope Durban will become, as beautiful as we hope the cities will be, as good as we hope the education institution will become, as safe and as wonderful as the Durban uh, that we envision, that we hope for, there will be something anticlimactic about that because it won't be the city of God. What we see in Hebrews 11, when we talk, uh, when you s see Abraham leaving his people and Abraham going uh, to, you know, to the place that God would show him, what does it say in Hebrews? He went, not going to, because that place was beautiful, he went in the hope of the city whose architect and builder is God himself. What we get when we get to the end of the biblical narrative is when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, what you get there is you get the city of God, the city that Zechariah prophesied about. You get the city that is a city without walls, a city where God is in the midst, a city where the glory of Christ shines as the light of the day, a city 
where the streets are paved with gold, a city where the lion and the lamb will lay together, a city of glory, of hope, of fulfillment, of Christ. What the anticlimactic nature of renewal does is it reminds us that our problems are profoundly spiritual and that our solution is profoundly found in Jesus. And not just in Jesus, but in his return as King and Lord over all the earth, in the new heavens and the new earth. The anticlimactic nature of renewal reminds us that we are not just hoping as Christians for a beautiful city to live in now. We are hoping for the city of Zion, that our vision is not just for great cities that we build and walls that we establish and cultures that we create and etc., etc., etc. Our hope is for the city of God, for Zion, the place in which Christ rules and reigns. It is the great hope of Christians. The anticlimactic nature of renewal, I think, prevents us from idolizing the here and now. It, it prevents us from idoli idolizing wonderful homes and cars, wonderful cities and cultures. It prevents us from idolizing that by reminding us that no matter how hard we work towards that, something just doesn't add up. Why? Because our vision is a vision of Christ. It's a vision of Jesus. It's a vision of the city of God. The Ezra-Nehemiah story, I think, is it's a story of renewal. It's a story of the long process of renewal, the multi-generational nature of it. It's a story of how God is central to that renewal process. But it's also the story that reminds us that the here and now is not just our hope, that our hope is for Christ and what he ultimately is building when he returns. Can I end with one story? <coughs> um, if you've read the book Good to Great by Jim Collins, uh, you probably at some point would have come across the Stockdale Paradox. And the Stockdale par Paradox was named after Admiral Stockdale, who was the highest ranking prisoner of war during the Vietnam War. Um, and so he and a, a whole bunch of other Americans were captured. They were in prisoner of war camps for eight years. He was tortured over 20 times. He has a pretty horrific story when, when, you, when you hear his story. But over those eight years of torture and whatever, he comes out uh, and a whole bunch of people that were imprisoned with him come out. And one of the things that they learn about this group of people is that they are surprisingly unaffected by the extreme things that they, they went through. Uh, so they chat to this admiral. They talk to him because he was deeply integral in helping a people a group of people come through incredible difficulty and get to the other <coughs> side pretty unscathed. And they asked him, how 
how did that happen? And one of the first things he says, he says, well, the first thing you must know is that the optimists all died. The optimists all died. You know, all the people that that would say in our prisoner of war camps that would say the Americans, they're coming to rescue us. We'll be out by, by Christmas. They all died. Their optimism ended up killing them. But he said this. He said what was key and central to their survival and to them getting through these incredible difficulties emotionally unscathed was two aspects and he called it a brutal realism and an ultimate hope and he said the brutal realism was this was reminding ourselves every day this is hectic what we are going through is tough and i and he would say to the guys we don't know when we're going to get out we don't know when we will be rescued we don't know when the americans will finally come and get us but he would say to them but what we do know is that one day if we're still around that day will come and and he said that was absolutely key it's become known as the stockdale paradox it's the paradox between having a brutal realism uh, understanding that sometimes things are really difficult but in the end we will prevail and I think what we see in the Ezra and Nehemiah story, what we as Christians have is something of this, this paradox. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. In this life you will have trouble. Life will be difficult. At every point in the Ezra and Nehemiah story, you see people trying to stop them from rebuilding the temple, trying to stop them from rebuilding the wall. At one point, they are building the temple, uh, the wall with one hand and a weapon in the other. There's like this tension. There's this difficulty. There's this, this rebuilding process, this renewal process is really difficult. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, but we are not as those who suffer without hope. We have hope. And the hope is Zion. The hope is Christ. And that he will prevail in the end. I, I think of Durban. I think of the challenge of South Africa right now. And I think if we are overly optimistic, we will die. And, and, but I think if we can carry that tension of knowing that the renewal process is really difficult, as it has always been, but at the same time, know that God is building his church. He is changing the world. He is renewing the heavens and the earth through Christ. And that ultimately, he will prevail. If we work tirelessly with that mindset, the brutal realism of the difficulties of the day, but the ultimate hope of Christ prevailing, I think we as a church... Uh, as the people of God in the city can see a more beautiful city in a hundred years time. Hopefully we'll see it, something of that in five, in ten, in fifty, and in twenty. But hopefully our vision of our city here is bigger than what can just happen in five years time. Can I pray for us? Donna, I don't know if you've got a song or, or what you're going to do. But let me pray. We can stand. Um,
Lord, I, I'm certain that I would be unaware of how affected each and, in, and every person has been by the last 18 months of COVID, uh, by the difficulties that that has imposed on people's financial uh, security, their work, etc., by the um, riots and the uncertainty of our country in the last month, um, by, by the many challenges that we have faced. I can't imagine what each and every individual in this room would probably be thinking or going through. But I pray, Lord, that just as, as a broken people came back to build a broken city, that you would take us in our own with our own challenges, maybe with our own fears, hopes, dreams, desires. You would take us even in our brokenness and that you would use us to rebuild, to see the city of Durban renewed. You would use us to see this place be filled with the light and the glory of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that uh, maybe for some of us where we've lost hope, where we, we feel a little bit hopeless in this time, I, I pray that we would see something of you, Jesus, of your grandness, of your glory, of how through what seemed like a defeat on the cross resulted in the glorious resurrection and the hope that we have that you will return. And I pray that that will stir in us hope and vision and life again. May you help us set our eyes on you, Jesus, the glorious author and perfecter of our faith. 